Thank you. Y'all are, y'all are hanging in here. This is good. I remember one time, uh, we have a very uh, skilled music leader at our church, First Pres Jackson. Uh, he can play pretty much anything. And he did a, a, a concert for the church, and it was all like music, like Mahler and Bartok. And it was all this kind of atonal, super contemporary music. And it, it, when it was over, my mother looked at me and she said, well, he must think very highly of us, you know, to play such highbrow music. I think very highly of you to talk to you at the level that I'm working at my office all the time. A um, couple of throw-ins. People had some good questions. Um, one was about, okay, you're talking a lot about aggressive jerky people. You talked about passive aggression. How about just passivity? I talk about this in the first marriage conference, and I'm not going to be very much help here because I find dealing with passive people to be the most difficult um, psychological, spiritual issue to deal with. Um, think about it. Passive means you don't initiate in your life. Okay? So that's, the reason that will make your spouse crazy is because it puts them in a double bind. The double bind is this. You're not initiating anything. Um, they're always having to remind you to call the plumber or they're initiating sex or they're coming back to let's talk about that argument we never finished or whatever. And if you don't do it, they get put in a double bind. What are their options? They can either... Be the initiator now and do so for the rest of time. Or they cannot initiate anything and nothing will happen because you won't do anything because you're passive. So they can actually step in and be the active one and live in that position forever. Or they can do nothing, which means nothing will happen, which is why it makes them crazy. Okay, The very fact of them trying to help you engage enables you to be more passive. Isn't that weird? Like, I have passive clients who are the worst. Because they'll come in and I'll go, so what's up? What do you want to talk about today? And they're like, I don't know. Whatever, whatever you think. And I have sat for entire 50-minute sessions without saying a word. I will say, that's okay. Take your time. Usually with people don't like to initiate what they want to talk about, they're afraid. Like, if I really come out and I exist... Something bad will happen, so let's help you learn that it's safe to come out. And you just start asking who you are. Sometimes passive people are passive-aggressive in the sense that they're not going to engage. They're going to force you to take responsibility. Most passive people are so afraid of conflict that they've kind of made themselves go away and um, not exist, so they don't initiate anything, so there's no risk. Okay? Okay. Now, here's a, just a tidbit for you ladies. One of the dynamics I see more often than I want to see it is a woman married to a man who she calls passive. He doesn't initiate anything. But then if you hang around him very much, when he does initiate anything, she criticizes it. I see that dynamic all the time. So it creates kind of a double message for him that keeps him passive. Anyway, passivity is a difficult one, but there's just some thoughts on it. Um, another thought was given to me by uh, Gordon Balls. Y'all know him? He's a therapist around here. Um, good, skilled colleague. Um, he said, he was talking about this last one about how setting limits on jerks and all that. He said, you know, an interesting way to think about this is because I was talking about so much in regard to this other person, though I did say, hey, we all have bad days, but he connected it to last night. He said, think about it. All of our inner five-year-olds need that kind of limit setting on difficult people stuff for us all the time. So 
we could fold the, that last talk into last night and think, you know, getting better at limit setting is actually going to help you better deal with the five-year-old in your spouse. Like, go Gordon. Good idea. Anyway, this is Body of Christ stuff, guys. Thank you. I do not sit in the seat of Moses. Um, your questions, your thoughts, you can see how much they have actually tweaked my thinking on this. Thank you. Body of Christ, man. <clears throat> All right, last one, forgiveness. Another pet project of mine. Um, you know, one of the biggest issues in marriage kind of lives in the background, okay? In other words, in the basement. I see so many couples who, like, have issues to work out, like mutuality or conflict or disagreements or whatever. But what you see is all you got to do is kind of scratch the body pain a little bit. And what's underneath is all this anger and resentment and stored up junk that they haven't resolved. And you start in on this one particular issue, and all of a sudden it's like that, that vault at Gringotts, you know, with the gold cups and everything. It's just like, and all of a sudden this one conflict turns into, before you know it, somebody's saying like, well, maybe we should just split up then, you know. And it's like, whoa, we were just talking about car insurance, man, you know, and how did it get there, Right. Think about it like this. Think about how much stuff in your house is there to get rid of garbage, to get rid of yuck. Uh, garbage cans, sinks, commodes, dishwashers, washing machines, vacuum cleaners, brooms, garbage cans, air filters. Um, we could go on all day. If you think about it, most of the stuff in your house is just to get rid of the garbage. Now imagine your house if you didn't have that. No garbage cans, no flushing toilets, no disposals, no washing machines, no vacuum cleaners. No, any What would your house look like? A disaster, okay? So essentially, what forgiveness is about in many senses is kind of installing a, you know, one of those, those HVACs in your marriage. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> so we need to talk about forgiveness, all right? Number one, because we're all a hot mess and we don't like to forgive. None of us like forgiving, really, you know? There's a great line in C.S. Lewis. I love Lewis. I mean, come on. Lewis talks about how much we love to hate and hold grudges. He says, for creatures like ourselves, who actually find hate to be such a pleasure that to give it, to give it up is like giving up beer or tobacco. <laughs> Why did God give us him? Um, <laughs> hate is such a pleasure. Giving up is like giving up beer or tobacco. Uh, secondly, it's kind of vital to make marriage work, okay, because you're going to be constantly hurting one another. Anything from a real betrayal to you forgot my birthday to I kind of resent the fact that you played all weekend with your friends and left me home with the kids. We have these junk, like, ways in which you've hurt me, and we've got to metabolize that because they're going to corrupt the marriage and you're going to have the vault at Gringotts, okay? But thirdly, it's kind of fundamental to our faith, too. I started thinking about this not just as a psychologist but as a... Um, a Christian, I mean, God talks about forgiveness a lot, <clears throat> but kind of like our last talk, I find the dynamics and the nuances and the complexity of forgiveness rarely talked about. I've never really heard anybody really unpack the dynamics and richness and difficulty of forgiveness, which seems odd to me, given how fundamental it is to our faith. We ought to understand forgiveness like we understand, you know, a 
our blood chemistry. It ought to be fundamental to us. I find that forgiveness, frankly, is misunderstood by, I ought to say the majority, but I'm going to say all of my clients, okay? Here's what I usually hear. I hear, I'm hurting, but I just know I'm supposed to forgive him. And I'm like, well, does she care? Um, has she helped you with this forgiveness thing? And they're like, no, she just says I'm too sensitive and I ought to move on. Okay, that's interesting. What should you do there? Or those backhanded apologies. Okay, here's John's little freebie throwaway. Here's my mini seminar on how not to apologize. You ready? <clears throat> I'm sorry that you feel that way. No. Um, look, I'm sorry. I'm not perfect, okay? No. Um, I said I'm sorry. No. Yeah, I make some mistakes, okay? I'm not perfect, all right? Any questions? All right, write those down, never say them, all right? Anyway, we have people asking questions about should I forgive them, should I forgive them, um, and you have this perp running around who doesn't really care what they've done or how they've hurt them, and now the forgiver is the one who's feeling burdened and guilty. Oh, I know I should forgive, okay? That's backwards, but that's what I constantly hear in my office. What I usually hear is people saying, well, you're just supposed to forgive, right? Okay, yeah, right, but how? When? When not? It's hard to forgive. How do we? Okay, so I want to talk about forgiveness. I want to talk about some thoughts about how forgiveness works. I want to make some distinctions about forgiveness versus other things. I want to sort of pull this forgiveness thing out into pieces so we can look at it like Iron Man puts things on the big computer, you know, and pulls the pieces out. That's what we're going to do to forgiveness. So Jarvis, crank that up for me, all right? All right, number one, this is not going to be a surprise to you by now, which I'm glad of. You're going to be learning. You're going to be, oh, he's talking about repentant and unrepentant again. Yes, he is. This is what he talks about, okay? As we said, the first question God asks when he meets anybody is, are they repentant or unrepentant? And this is vital under this forgiveness topic because the first issue we run into if you're going to ask forgiveness questions is, does this person care? And this, that's an important question because it's a lot messier, it's a lot harder to forgive someone who doesn't acknowledge that they've hurt you or is unrepentant or doesn't care. I want y'all to have this category when it comes to forgiveness because most people don't make it, okay? And if you don't have it, things get real screwy down the line. So bottom line here, simply, the rules are very different whether you're dealing with a repentant person or an unrepentant person when it comes to forgiveness, okay? So let's review what we talked about earlier. What does God do with repentant people? He forgives them. Just like, like as, as far as the east is from the west, he forgives them. Don't you love that he didn't say north and south? Because you can measure that. But the distance to east to west is infinite. What does God call us to do with an unrepentant person? <clears throat> well, as we said a minute ago earlier, it kind of gets messier there. He says a lot of things. He says love them. He says rebuke them. He says admonish them. He says, go to your brother. He says, take one or two others along with you. He says, keep your eye on this person. He says, pray for them. 
He says, have nothing to do with them. In other words, you see, suddenly it gets a lot messier. And we don't take that into account. Okay? So, if you feel like you need to just forgive someone who's unrepentant and doesn't care, be careful. Maybe you should, but the dynamics are a lot trickier. It's a lot slipperier ground, and we're going to unpack some of that. All right? But just for now, starting off, just know these are very different animals, and I rarely hear that distinction made in Christian circles. Um, one of my professors at RTS was R.C. Sproul, and he said once, Gentlemen, even God doesn't forgive unrepentant sinners. I'm not sure about that. I think God comes to us even in our worst state. I don't know, but it gives you food for thought. What is, how should we respond to unrepentant people? Okay, I'm, I'm speaking about this particular part of this talk to those of you, and I see so many Christians in this position, who feel really burdened to forgive someone who's injured you, and Cruella is over there like, you know, polishing her fingernails. She doesn't care at all, okay? And you're living under all this burden of why am I not more forgiving, okay? So let's start with repentant people, all right? Because that's easier. <laughs> and by the way, by repentant, I don't mean, hey, gee, I'm really sorry for what I did. Here's what repentant means. And this is kind of a level 10, but I want you to get the drift. Here's what repentant means. You know, I really know, uh, I really know what I did injure you. I know I took so much from you. Um, it was, I treated you like you completely didn't matter. You must have felt like a piece of garbage after what I did. I, I really get that. I want you to help me know how I can help you. There. Um, I want to understand what I took from you. That's what repentance sounds like, okay? Not, okay, I'm sorry, right? So what do we do when someone is repentant? What does God tell us to do with people who are repentant? Forgive them. Good, y'all. Yeah, you know, 70 times 7, that whole kind of thing. But Why? I'm going to diverge a little bit on this just because I want to. Why does God tell us to forgive? Why should we forgive other people? Why should we forgive other people? Well, number one, God says so, stand for the benediction, all right? But there's usually more that for, in God's universe than just I said so. His law and his way is practical and life-giving. So why else? One of the reasons the Bible talks a lot about our forgiving other people um, is a little unnerving to me in a sense, and that is because how we respond to forgiving with other people really kind of defines our universe, which sounds really cool, but it's not. Um, you remember those passages where God says stuff that I find very interesting and actually a little disturbing? He implies in so many places that the way that we will be forgiven by him is going to be affected by the way that we forgive other people. <laughs> I'm like, Really? You know, there's like the um, unforgiving servant parable in Matthew 18, and there's the uh, judge not, but by the same standard you will be judged. There's that part of the Lord's Prayer where we actually say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I don't know about you, but those, these make me nervous, you know? I actually find myself wanting to hedge on the Lord's Prayer and say, forgive me our, my debts as differently as possible, 
from the way in which, I mean, maybe he is going to forgive me the way I forgive my debtors, but I'm certainly not going to ask him to, for heaven's sakes, you know. But anyway, but God implies he kind of looks at us and he says, you know, uh, help me get a vibe, a sense of what kind of universe you want to live in. I mean, if you want sort of a hardcore, no mercy universe, okay, get a hardcore, no mercy universe. I mean, I hate that for you. Um, I'm going to take my vibe for how you want me to relate to you from how you relate to other people. That kind of makes me want to rethink my grudge list, frankly, okay? Those of us who don't want to forgive, be aware of that, okay? So part of the reason we forgive is because it says, I want a universe of mercy, please. That's what I want to live in. All right, thirdly, forgiving other people kind of has some things to say about how I define me. In other words, think about it like this. If I'm holding a grudge over you, and I'm thinking, you're such a bad person, what's wrong with that? You are a bad person, right? I mean, we're Presbyterians. <laughs> you're real bad. What's wrong with that? It's bad not because of what it says about you. You are bad. It's bad because of what it implies about me. What does it imply about me? That I'm good. That I'm not bad. In other words, within God's universe, living in an unforgiving, grudge-holding position isn't bad because I'm saying you're bad. It's bad because I'm saying I am not bad. I would never do anything like you did. And Jesus has the scariest name in the world for these people. He calls us the well. He says, I didn't come to save the righteous, but sinners. Not the well, but the sick. So why is it so bad to be well? Well, who never gets a visit from the great physician? The well. You don't want to be well, I promise you. Humans don't forgive one another out of our benevolent, loving kindness like God does. I forgive thee. Jesus is pretty clear that we are called to forgive one another because who are you to talk? In other words, like, yeah, I'd love to get that speck out of your, your eye, but there's this beam that keeps hitting you in the head coming out of my eye as I'm swinging my head around, okay? In other words... When we forgive someone technically within Jesus' universe, we're not letting them off the hook. We're tacitly acknowledging. This is why forgiveness is such a life-giving, healing force to you, is that we are not letting them off the hook. We're declaring to them and to ourselves and to God and to the universe that we're on the same hook. And the most alive, life-giving, powerful, rich place you could ever be in your life as a Christian is to know what hook you are on. You live that way every day and you just were filled with him. He's looking for people who are broken and know what hook they're on. We don't like being on that hook. That's one of the reasons it's hard to forgive, by the way. That's one of the reasons it's fun to be mean. Why is it fun to be mean? Y'all feel that way too, right? 
All of a sudden, I feel this like, oh, maybe they're not like me. Like, uh, you know, I kind of like being mean sometimes, you know. It's like I like making my point, my finger in Norma's face. You know, I'm going to let her have it. You know, she's not getting away with this. Why does it feel good to hold a grudge? Psychologically speaking, the reason it does is a dynamic called projection. What happens is, one of the reasons we are mean or cruel or hold grudges is because what happens is, I've got all this cruelty and meanness and shame and hurt and junk inside of me, and it feels bad. I'm not real aware of it because I'm not that conscious, right? But if I make you feel like garbage, if I shame you, scold you, am cruel to you, oh my gosh, you disgust me. I, it's like I have 10 pennies of shame and guilt and anger and rage and yuckiness inside of me. And if I can be mean to you, it like takes about eight of those pennies and chunks them in you. And now I've only got two left, so I feel a lot better. That's why it feels good to hold a grudge. Now you feel terrible, and I feel better. You disgust me. I can't believe you do that. And now you feel terrible, and I feel better. I might say, boop, up like this. Okay, because I've gotten rid of eight of those 10 pennies temporarily. Okay, you've got the freaking Denver Mint inside of you, like stamping out new pennies all the time, all right? So they'll come back, but temporarily it kind of feels good. But that's one of the reasons that it is fun to be mean. Um, that's a freebie, right? Okay. All right, so if they're, if they're repentant, God calls us to begin the process of forgiving. Note that word, we'll come back to it. But here's the good news. And this is like one of the coolest things I'm going to tell you this weekend. The good news is that if the person you are forgiving is really repentant, it's actually easier to forgive them. And I'm going to tell you why. Let's make a distinction between forgiveness and not mattering. One of the reasons that forgiveness is so hard. It's hard, right? One of the reasons that it's so hard is because forgiveness always involves a cost. In other words, most issues that need forgiveness involve an injury or a loss that creates a cost. And in this universe, at least, when there's a cost, someone is going to have to pay. Are you with me so far? If you injure me, somebody will pay. You wreck my car, either you pay to fix my car, or I pay to fix my car, or I drive a banger car around, but somebody pays. Got it? There's no way somebody doesn't pay. Now, with relational issues, you hurt me relationally, somebody pays too. What do we pay? You hurt me, and if I'm going to forgive you, what do we pay? What has happened? Here is the issue. We are not even anymore. I am hurt and you are not. You have wounded me and I am injured. Okay? Now, <clears throat> if we don't hurt them back, if we don't hold a grudge, if we don't get even demanding vindication, retribution, there's this real sense in which we are paying and they're kind of getting away with it. In other words, they have reduced us. I'm hurt and they're not and I'm going to leave it that way. Okay? Suddenly we're not even Stephen anymore. I'm hurt and they're not. And forgiveness means I absorb that hurt and don't hurt them back. We're not even. 
I call this the injustice gap, and it smarts, it hurts. You feel it when you're in a place where you want to get revenge. You feel that injustice. I'm hurt, and if I forgive this, if I don't punish them back, they just get away with it, okay? So forgiveness means I'm going to sit with that injustice, that gap, and I'm going to pay it. And this is a huge reason that forgiveness is so hard. And here's why. Something in us resists that inequity so much. And here's why. Because emotionally speaking, if you hurt me and I don't make you pay, you've injured me and I don't make you do retribution back, I just let it go. I just absorb that injury. It gets so close to the edge of me saying that the fact that you injured me really doesn't matter at all. You can just injure me and walk away. I'm not that important. And something in us resists that so much that we often don't forgive. Okay? So the question is, if I actually forgive this injury and I don't make you pay, what does that say about how much my injury mattered? Let me put a face on this. This is in the parenting book, but it's so applicable to this. I was watching my two oldest kids when they were little. They were just playing on the floor. And I look up and Catherine just like, whack, Callie across the face, just slaps her silly. And I'm sitting there, I watched it happen. I said, Catherine, time out. Go, you just whacked your sister. And she looks at me, and she says, but Daddy, can't you just forgive me? And for a moment, I entertain the thought, you know, this might be a good chance to teach grace. You know, an experiential moment where you sin, but, you know, the Father forgives you. This could be kind of cool. And this is what I do to God all the time. I do all sorts of awful crap to other people, and I go, God, will you forgive me? You know, and, and, and so maybe I ought to do this. And then I saw Callie's face, and she looked like this. What did that face say? Do I matter so little to you and in the universe that Catherine can just whack me, and you're just going to go, I'm fine. What would that say about Callie's dignity? Saw it on her face. It also helped me understand, by the way, why Jesus needed to die. In other words, when there is an affront to the very core and dignity of someone, there has to be a payment. Now, if there had to be a payment, if to not punish Catherine at all would have violated Callie, imagine what it would require to pay a, a, a violation of the, the sovereign of the universe. It would take the very death of the Son of God. There has to be a payment. People always go, I don't understand why Jesus has to die. Then you hadn't thought deep enough. So, that's one of the reasons it's really hard to forgive. Because if you forgive, if you let go of that injustice gap, you are like walking on the tightrope of saying, basically, I'm Callie. You hurt me and it doesn't matter, okay? So, if they're going to lose this much, if forgivers are going to give up that much, we got to take care of these people. They need to be given to. Let's give these guys a break. What do they need? A couple of things they need. The first one's going to be cool. The second one is going to be the coolest thing in the universe. 
First thing they need is to be heard. Basically, the three H's. I've alluded to them last night. Healing, hearing heals hurt. In other words, in order for me to get over an injury, in order for me to metabolize the loss, in order for me to deal with that inequity gap and how much I feel like it's been taken from me, I am really going to need to feel safe to speak the truth of the injury to someone. It's best if I can speak it to the injurer. But otherwise, body of Christ people, you have to have some context in which that part of you is not alone. This happened. He did this. She did that. It doesn't need to be a bunch of people. You know, your spouse cheats on you, so you want to out them to the universe. That's your hostility. That's not being heard. You need a couple of people who are very safe, and we need to speak the truth of the injury. This is what he did. This is how she acted. This is what happened. Now, a lot of times Christians resist this step because it sounds a lot like blame. They did this and they did that, okay? Well, it does sound a lot like blame because it is blame, all right? Not all blame is bad. Let's don't be too afraid of it. Um, in other words, some, there's a sense in which we need to confess our own sins, of course, but also the Bible talks about, you know, the sins of our fathers, the sins committed against us, Okay? Our sin hurts us two ways, not one. Our sin is destructive because we sin, but sin is also destructive because we bear the scars of other people's sin. And if we're going to make sense, if we're going to take sin really seriously, then we need to take seriously the effect it has on us when we are sinned against. And that's not blame. That's stewardship, guys. All right? Like we said earlier this morning, like God in the Old Testament you know, yeah, that was this morning. He blames all the time. He's like, you know, I did this for you and I did that for you. He names the sin. Jeremiah 3, as a woman is unfaithful to her husband, so you have been unfaithful to me. Is that clear? You got questions? He's letting you have it. He's saying, I'm naming your injury, okay? Now, if that's where the story stopped, with God pointing the finger of blame, we'd all be in a heap of trouble, boy, all right? Gratefully, that's not where he stops. And if we stopped with pointing the finger of blame and lived there forever, that would be a problem too. And that's where blame has gotten its bad name. Because some people just love to live in that ten pennies of blame forever. And that's really toxic. But don't let that, you know, don't throw the baby out with the bath, don't throw the blame baby out with the bath water. <laughs> um, just because some people misuse blame, blame and speaking the truth of an injury is a first step in healing it, okay? So, unless we're really in the context of a lot of loving, understanding, embracing of hearing the injury, we probably are going to really have trouble letting go of the injury and forgiving it, which is often why people don't forgive. Um, again, this kind of understanding is often is, is best but when it's given by the injurer, okay? What I usually hear in my office, a, a hurtful spouse, you know, maybe they've, they've um, had an inappropriate relationship, and what is it I hear them saying to the spouse they've wounded? Look, come on, I fired the secretary, okay? It's over, all right? Can you get over this? I mean, even Paul talks about how, you know, 
Forgetting what lies behind, I press forward and, you know, why do we have to keep going over this? Let's go. All right, now, what do you think that feels like and sounds like to the injured spouse? How much do they hear in that that they matter? And here's our second point and our key word. I want to hear spouses saying, what do you need? I'm lucky you're even talking to me. Thank you that you're working so hard to forgive me. This is just like you can, you can, you, what, what kind of accountability you need from me. You can ask me all the questions you need to talk to. And like I said last night, there's a limit to that. After a certain point, some people can turn that into a billy club they use for the rest of the marriage. That's not good. But I want to hear that spouse being that vulnerable. I want to let how I hurt you matter. Now, here's where we tie it into the injustice gap. What happens if you have been injured by someone and that injurer talks to you in that kind of a broken, humble way about what they did? And what we get is like one of the coolest secrets for healing a relationship. Remember that injustice gap where I'm down here and you hurt me and you're up there? Well, as the injurer speaks to the injured in humility, what happens is the injurer themselves begins closing that injustice gap. Not by bringing the injured person up, but by bringing themselves down. And now we aren't in equity anymore. In inequity anymore. You are down, one down, broken by the way I've injured you. And I am bringing myself down, broken in sorrow for the way that I injured you. And boom, you heal the injustice gap. By your repentance and by your humility. God made that up. And one of the things I see happen when people do that, this is like a mind blower, is if someone gets injured in a marriage and the injurer is willing to take that level of humility and brokenness and openness as to how they have injured you, what you can see sometimes, lots of times, is that even after an injury, the relationship can actually get better. You've injured me and I've seen you break an attempt to heal. And I see those people's relationships get richer. Somehow God creates a, 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 a chemistry that makes the, 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 the actual wounding we create be something that's because it's healing. Crazy. So the major reason that we don't want to forgive is because it gets close to not mattering. Now, if you're an injurer and you come in, if you've hurt somebody and you come in in humility, you can help heal that inequity gap. That is gold, okay? All right, so cool healing stuff, sweet stuff, dear connection, healing, and humility. But usually forgiveness isn't this sweet and isn't this simple, and it usually doesn't go this well, and it's usually stupid, complicated, so I want to create some more categories for what we do with forgiveness when it gets messy. Okay? Next. Distinction. I want to make a distinction between forgiveness and permissiveness. Now we're moving more into talking about with unrepentant people. How do you make sense of losses and forgiveness with unrepentant people? One of the things that I see a ton in my office is people who feel guilty because they're not forgiving somebody because, you know, you're supposed to forgive them. 
But it turns out the injury is still happening. You know? So I had a client once who was really saying, I'm so struggling to forgive my husband because he's always so critical and jerky and mean. I'm like, oh, God, good for you. When did it happen last? And she said, oh, on the phone on the way here, he called me and blessed me out. I'm like, whoa, okay. Um, <clears throat> boys and girls, forgiveness is by definition about an event that happened in the past, Okay. And a lot of people feel a lot of burden to be forgiving people when they're engaging in a continuing current injury that's still happening. Now, I don't want to be insensitive here, but that's just dumb, all right? You can't heal an injury that's still happening. My friend gossips about me, and I feel like I ought to forgive them. No, you're missing the first step. By definition, it's impossible to forgive an ongoing action. It's not past yet. It's not over yet. What we forgive is past injuries. To do otherwise is not called forgiveness. It's called permissiveness. Thank you, sir. May I have another? Okay? So, sometimes, in order to even enter the playing field of forgiveness, we have to stop the injuring. In other words, the first thing that needs to happen is that behavior needs to become a past behavior, if you know what I mean. In other words, in order to even walk onto the playing field of forgiveness, we might need to talk more about limit setting on a hurtful person, which we just did, so we're ahead of the game, okay? So somebody's constantly going off on you because you displeased them. The first thing we need to do is to go back to the difficult people talk, start talking about setting some limits on this yucky behavior, and then we can start working on forgiveness, okay? So, um, you know, is, this, is your husband, you know, he used porn or whatever, and is like, are you supposed to forgive that? Well, are you really sure it's not still happening? Is it a past behavior? I want to be sure of that. You can't forgive something that's ongoing, okay? Now, once they stop, now you've got a forgiveness issue. Welcome back to the club, okay? But you have to stop a behavior before you can forgive it, not rocket surgery, okay? This is hard enough to do as it is. Don't make it impossible. Now, um, next, with repentant or unrepentant, I like to make a distinction between forgiveness versus a choice. This is very important for us as Christians in general. Um, you want to forgive? Awesome. How? Well, bottom line is that forgiveness is not so much a choice as it is a process. One of the kind of kooky things that Christian culture has done and continues to do is our contemporary Christian culture tends to turn a lot of our spiritual struggles and our um, heart choices and our heart issues into simple choices, you know, Choose to obey. You need to start acting better. You need to stop acting that way. Like you can flip a switch and do that. Anybody besides me struggle with that? And in so doing, that Christian culture misses all those plan analogies in Scripture about becoming this vine and abiding with Him and bearing fruit in this growth process. And they forget that, that verb tense in the Greek called the aorist tense, which we don't have in English, but it's a verb tense that implies not present behavior or past behavior, but, you know, when Paul says, be putting away the deeds of the flesh, he's writing that in aorist tense, 
And what that means literally is begin and enter the process of putting away these deeds of the flesh, a process that you will be engaged with, with quite, for quite a while. It will be ongoing and continuous. And it's a plural verb which involves you guys doing it together. So it's a pretty complex, nuanced flow of a process, okay? And instead, we often make obedience the static choice that you're just supposed to do better. Now, if you see forgiveness like that, you're going to get jackknife at every turn, amigo, all right? The truth is that, that forgiveness is more of a spiritual psychological process, more akin to grief than anything else. They're very, very, very similar, okay? In other words, uh, forgiveness is very different from like paying your taxes, you know? Nobody likes to forgive and nobody likes to pay your taxes, but you can just sit down with your checkbook and pay your taxes, right? But with forgiveness, you can't just sit down and do it. You have to begin a process. It's like grief. You can't just come home from the funeral home and, and like, get over the loss of your loved one. No, you begin a journey. You begin a process that's ongoing. Same with forgiveness, all right? You can't make yourself feel forgiveness. If you do try to willpower it, you're just going to get one of two options. Number one is you're going to grit your teeth and say, okay, I'm going to forgive him. Ah, feeling that grudge again. God, I just saw him walk into the church and I just felt this, ah. And I'm like, ugh, I need to stop doing that. I'm going to forgive going to do it. And you grit your teeth. And how well does that work? Not real well, so you fail, right? Now how do you feel? You feel guilty. Okay, so let me get this straight. You feel guilty for not forgiving the guilty party. That's super stupid, all right? So, like, that doesn't work. The willpower thing, eh, I see people really struggle with that, all right? The other option with the, um, if you miss that forgiveness is a process and see it as a choice, the other option is superficial forgiveness. That's where it's sort of like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm over it. I'll let go. I've moved on. It's good, you know. Or, you know, I love this one. Um, well, I forgive you as a Christian. You know, that one gives me just little warm fuzzies, you know. <laughs> but I'm never going to sit near you in church again, and I'm going to keep bringing it up with little barbs and all that kind of stuff. All right, why are we like that? Because they haven't really entered the real process of of, of, of forgiveness. It's not a choice, it's a process, okay? Which leads us to our next distinction, what's going to happen in that process. I want to distinguish between forgiveness and healing. All right, here's another secret to making sense of forgiveness. If you're going to understand forgiveness, you got to recognize that with forgiveness, we're not talking about one issue, we're talking about two issues. We are talking about a sin or an injury that needs to be forgiven, and we're talking about an injury, a wound, a hurt that needs to get healed. And these both exist, and do not forget that they're both there. Most issues that require forgiveness also involve an injury that needs to get healed, okay? A lot of times, here's where it's applicable, rubber meets the road. A lot of times people who need to keep talking about an injury are doing so not because they've not forgiven you. They're needing to talk about the injury because that's the way they're working to try to heal it. It's possible to still need to process the injury even after forgiveness has taken place. Got it? 
And you just have the injurer over there going, oh my gosh, she keeps bringing it up and she keeps needing to talk about it and I think we're kind of past this and she needs to bring it up again. Why can't she just forgive me? And I'm like, well, actually, the truth is she probably has forgiven you. She's talking about it not because she's wanting to hold a grudge or get some sort of vindication. She's talking about it because it's still an injury. And a lot of times injuries take some time and more talk to get better. So bottom line, continuing to hurt over an injury is not the same as unforgiveness. If you run over my, my foot with your car, I will probably forgive you. I'm a bad driver too. Same hook. But I'm going to need surgery, and I'm going to need like PT for my broken foot, and I'm going to need a cane. And if you're an idiot, you're going to say, oh my gosh, why do I have to keep driving you to PT? Can't you just forgive me? Do you see the idiocy of it? The moron factor there? Okay. In other words, I'm still dealing with the injury regardless of the forgiveness piece. I gave this talk once and one time, this really obnoxious guy came up to me afterwards and he said, well, I'd like to know how you would handle it if like somebody came and killed your whole family or that you were a Jew in a concentration camp. I'm like, was he thinking I was talking about how good I am at forgiveness? That's why I'm qualified to do this talk. Now, um, what I said to him was, you know, I probably would not be able to forgive mass murderers or Nazis. Um, but <laughs> letting go of it, I said, would not be impossible to me. I mean, I, I would have trouble with it because that's just the kind of boy I am. I, you know, I don't like forgiving people. But I would probably really have trouble with it, not because I would not be forgiving, but because I would probably spend the rest of my life trying to somehow metabolize the loss, the injury, the horror of it. Okay. So whether you're the injured party or the injurer, remember these are two issues here. Forgiveness issue, don't want to punish you, get vindication, get you back, you're bad, I'm good. And the second issue of injury, can I deal with the hurt? Don't confuse these. Now, by the way, if you are an injurer and you've hurt somebody, this gives you something you can do. Okay, you're tired of them talking about this and complaining about it and bringing it up. You can actually do something for them here. What do they need? They need to be heard and understood and they need that humility and that mattering and for you to lower the injustice gap. And those are all the things healing heals hurt, those things that heal the injury, since we're not talking about a forgiveness issue anymore, right? They can get it other places, but it's best if it comes from you who's hurt them. Which leads us to another distinction. There is between forgiveness and getting free. This has real application to an unrepentant person. Some people who have hurt you do not care at all. And some people who have hurt you may be dead. You know, so a deceased parent or somebody, and you want to, you know, tell them what it's what's what for, but they're gone, you know, and you, you're stuck. How do I forgive this person? <clears throat> One thing we got to realize if we're talking about this issue of forgiveness, and I'm going to use air quotes a lot in this segment because technically what we're talking about here isn't, actual chemically pure forgiveness i'll tell you why in a second but when we're talking about an issue of forgiveness here like this um, we often talk about forgiveness in in a sense that sort of says you know you should forgive like it's a moral obligation like it's the thing you ought to do and that's true 
Or sometimes we talk about forgiveness almost as if it's a gift to the, to the, to the injurer. Like, oh my gosh, how sweet you forgave him. Almost like you've given them a gift, you know? But in most cases, especially with an unrepentant person, somebody who's hurt you and doesn't care, I believe it's in your best interest to forgive. Let me explain why. Bottom line is, it makes you free. Think about how we live with someone who has injured us. How do you live? You live angry. You toss and turn. You walk down a different hall at church so you don't have to see them. You obsess about them. It changes the way you, you, you relate to them. They have all this power. Their injury to you and the grudge you feel against them owns you. Basic principle, the unforgiver can end up being a slave, in a sense, to the perp. The injured ends up being sort of owned by the injurer because they own you and they own that part of you they injured. You obsess about them, you think about them, you hate their guts, you, you, um, you go through imaginary conversations in your head as to what you'd like to really tell them, right? This kind of forgiveness, the getting free kind of forgiveness, is about taking that back. And that's why I don't call this forgiveness per se, because this isn't about addressing a debt that's owed. They haven't asked for that, remember? They don't care. This is for you. It doesn't erase the debt between you and me. It erases the debt to which, the degree to which this debt defines me. I'm no longer going to live in a position that allows what you've taken from me to so define me. So I have a guy um, years back, and he was involved in a scandal at the church, and the pastor totally betrayed him and gossiped about him, and it deeply hurt him, and he was obsessed with this rage, and the pastor wouldn't talk to him, and no matter what he did, it didn't get better, and blah, blah, blah. And he really had to make sense of how much he wanted to live in that position of grudge-holding. How much he wanted to let that define him, okay? Here, forgiveness means I'm no longer going to let myself be defined by what you took from me. I am not going to let, live in a position of holding, letting you hold this much over me, letting it consume me like it does. This is a forgiveness that takes care of me. Who am I in spite of the fact that you hurt me? I want to be grounded with the people who love me. I want to, I ask people sometimes, okay, 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 what this person said to you in essence is, you're just a piece of garbage, you shouldn't be treated with any dignity. Now let's you and me decide, do you have dignity? Let's take that. They don't get to decide that. They don't get to decide that. Because they treated you like garbage, that you're garbage, uh-uh. Let's take that back, okay? Make this distinction with unrepentant people. It is a letting go that frees you. All right, final distinction. Forgiveness versus reconciliation. Short answer, they are not the same. Okay? In other words, forgiving someone does not necessarily mean that I'm going to move back to relating to them in exactly the same way as I did before they injured me. Okay? You might, you can, but it does not necessarily mean that. Up until now, everything we've been talking about regarding forgiveness has been about you, 
your heart, your choice, your growth, your relationship with God, your relationship with you. But when you start talking about reconciliation, you're bringing someone else into this game. And they may not care. They may not be safe. They may be habitual offenders. They may be people who you would be an idiot to stay close to. All of a sudden, we get a lot more complexity here, okay? I mean, do they want a relationship with you? Can you trust them in the future? Okay? So maybe I will forgive them, but I'm going to forgive them and relate to them through one of those like glass walls with the telephones in the prison, you know, and that's going to be what our relationship's like, okay? In other words, things are going to change a little. So in this sense, these aren't really forgiveness questions. Forgiveness can take place, and then we have the wisdom question. Remember my line from earlier? That love keeps no record of wrongs. Sometimes wisdom must, and reconciliation is a wisdom issue. You know, I love when Paul says in Romans 12, even Paul says, as it is possible, live at peace with all men. I love that. It's like Paul's going, okay, guys, look, I get it. You know, I got to live with these people too. Just do what you can, man. You know, it's like... (laughs) There's just a lot of knuckleheads out there. But as it is possible, as I close this book, just do what you can, dude. You know, um, the John Cox translation of Romans. <clears throat> In other words, here's where I'm going with this. It is legitimate to need to relate very differently to people sometimes, even after you've forgiven them. That's legit, okay? You might let go of the... I'm bad, you're, I'm good, you're bad, you, you owe me vindication, but I still might say I'm not lending you money again, you're not borrowing my car again, I'm not giving you that part of my heart again. That's changed, okay? It is legitimate for us to change our way of relating and still forgive people, okay? And in fact, what you hear a lot of times is those people who are demanding that you forgive, forgive them, come on, why can't you just let this go? What they're really saying is, I want you to go back to relating to me as if I never hurt you and make that just pretend to go away. I want to live with you without any of the cost of what I created. They're not talking about forgiveness. Now, by the way, by virtue of their saying that, they are proving to you that they're still hurtful people or they wouldn't be saying that. Okay? You know, those people say, I don't understand why you're keeping so much distance from me. I thought you forgave me. Well, what they just said proves that they hadn't changed Jack. They're still in that demanding position, okay? So I had this guy, a business partner years back, who just totally screwed me over. And um, I, I, was, I hated his guts for about a year. And then I got to the we're on the same hook place, and I thought, I need to resolve this. So I called him up. And I said, let's get together. I need to talk. And uh, I wanted to forgive him. I felt like this was like... Uh, setting me free thing, um, getting free thing. Like, I, I, I hated this guy. So I got together with him, and I said, I wanted to confess to you that I hate your guts, and I have all year, and I don't think that's a good place for me to be, and I don't want to be there anymore, and I don't know. I want to forgive you for what you did. And he said, oh, man, thanks. You want to get dessert? And I keep waiting for the, uh, understand that you were hurt because I really screwed you over. I left you in a, and he never, ever said anything about his role. And I went, okay, I'm free, and we are no longer friends, okay? Forgiveness taken place, and you've proven to me that you are somebody really destructive, both. Forgiven and no reconciliation, all right? 
I've seen so many really sweet, nice Christians not make that distinction and just get buggy whipped, all right? One more issue, real quick on this, has to do with the issue of trust. And I'm just going to throw this out real quick. A lot of people, when they're trying to rebuild relationship after an injury, go into a position of, well, I just don't know if I can trust them anymore, okay? Legit. So that obviously requires a little season of time of, of new experiences in the relationship, seeing that this person has actually changed the way they live and relate. Cool. That's legit. But one of the things that that does is it leaves them in a little bit of a helpless position. Like they're just sitting around kind of waiting, seeing if the perp's going to do it again. Well, it's been three months. Is that long enough? And you see the helpless factor. You're kind of like, I don't know if I can trust them. And trust is kind of complicated anyway. But here's the point I want you to get here. It's very important if you're thinking about rebuilding trust after an injury that you realize that trust doesn't have one side, it has two. There's the issue of, can I trust you to change and be different? But there's also the issue of, can I trust me? In other words, yeah, can I trust you to not injure me like that? But I like to invite my trusters to start asking also, yeah, but can I also trust me that I'm powerful enough to engage you with strong limits, consequences, groundedness, community, body of Christ, that I can be in a place, if you do hurt me again, I'm not going to be that fragile and that woundable. I'm going to be grounded and solid and loved and surrounded. I trust me. I'm not just sitting here waiting to see what you do. I also know how I'll respond if you do. I trust me. Okay? I want you to have that category, though we could talk a long time about it, um, just because it ends up leaving people otherwise in a place of just sort of hoping the other person acts better. No, you have a lot of resources in terms of thinking about how to make yourself kind of a beefier person in regards to these kind of relationships, right? So, those are some verses on forgiveness.